Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here today. And uh, we uh, continue today. We started talking last week about asking the question, how does God's system of law and order work? And a lot of people think that God's system of justice is a lot like the American system of justice, which basically is the concept of if I do the things I'm supposed to do and I don't do the things I'm not supposed to do, then I stay out of trouble. I uh, stay out of jail or in God's case, I stay out of hell. As we began to learn last week, though, his system of justice is really quite different, isn't it? God's system of justice is not based on my performance, is it? God's system of justice is based on Jesus' performance, on what Jesus has already done for us when He died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. God's system of justice is not based on my ability to do enough good. I never will. God's system of justice is based on what Jesus has already done for us. And I simply have to be willing to place my trust in Jesus. We are. Uh, the Bible also talks about that once I have placed my trust in Jesus, that there is a way that I can publicly declare to other people that I have placed my trust in Jesus. It's an incredible thing, a beautiful thing called baptism. And I want you to watch what happened uh, last Sunday night at the Yacht Club. Than anyone ever Every day You're the same You never change You'll never Pretty cool, huh? Pretty cool. Six people who publicly declared that they had placed their trust in Jesus Christ. Well, we are working our way through a letter that is recorded in the Bible, written by Paul, who was an early leader in the church, and he writes to a group of people a lot like us in a city called Galatia, and he writes to them about God's system of law and order. Evidently, they had similar questions to ours. How does God's system of justice work? And today I want us to jump into chapter 2, where Paul sheds some light on God's system of law and order and how it impacts the way that we treat people and our relationship with people. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we are in Galatians chapter 2, and I encourage you to do that. And like I said last week, I hope you'll bring your Bibles every week and uh, take some notes there and uh, know what we're doing. Galatians is uh, found towards the end of the New Testament. It's right after First and Second Corinthians. And if you get to Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, you've gone too far. Well, as you're turning there, let me tell you just a quick story that I heard about uh, Mickey Mantle and Billy Martin and uh, their relationship with each other. Uh, many, many years ago, Mickey Mantle said to Billy Martin one day, let's go hunting. I've got this friend who owns a, a farm outside the city. Uh, we'll go out there and hunt. So they uh, got in the car, headed out there. When they got there, Mickey Mantle said, you wait here. He went inside uh, to try to find the owner of the piece of property to ask for permission to hunt that day. And he found him and the owner said, absolutely, you feel free to hunt as long as you like. 
Um, but there's one thing you could do for me. He said, I've got this mule, and he's been really sick, and really needs to be put down. Do you think you could put him out of his misery for me? I just don't have the heart to do it myself. Mickey Mantle said, sure, I'd be happy to do that for you. And then he thought, this is an opportunity for a great practical joke on Billy Martin. So he acted really angry. He stomped back out to the car. His face was angry. He slammed the door and he said, I can't believe it. He said, we can't hunt today. I am so ticked off. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going out to the barn. I'm going to shoot one of his mules. Billy Martin's saying, no, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. But Mickey Mantle drove the car as fast as he could right back to the barn. And he jumped out and he stomped in with his rifle and shot the mule. Well, immediately after his shot, he heard two other shots. And so he went back out to the car and Billy Martin wasn't there and his rifle was gone. He turned and he said, Martin, what did you do? Billy Martin came out with anger on his face and he said, we'll show that guy. I just shot two of his cows. And some of you are wondering, what does that really have to do? Well, it's sort of relational, but it was really funny. So... Let's look at Galatians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1 today. We're going to read again quite a bit of this because I want you to see exactly what happens here. And then we're going to kind of jump in and uh, dig through it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, he said, Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. And most scholars think, most commentary writers think that 14 years is a reference to the time period since his conversion, since Paul became a Christ follower. And 14 years has gone by. Verse 2, he says, or he says, I took Titus also along. Verse 2, I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We do not give in to them for a moment, or we did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the Gospel might remain with you. Now, what's going on here? Well, the situation is, Paul has sort of a conflict with some other leaders in the church. There were some of them, the Gentiles, who said, all you have to do to follow Jesus is simply place your trust in Him. But there are others, mostly Jews, who said, Well, that begins by that, but to really follow Him, to really be a Christ follower, there are all these other rules and rituals of the Jewish faith that you also have to practice. And if you're not willing to practice those things, then we're not sure you're really a Christ follower. In particular, most of the Jews would have said, you need to be circumcised. So Paul says, I don't think that's right. And so he and some other leaders in the church are have opposing ideas to some extent. And so there is a sense of conflict, a little bit of tension between them. Verse 6 continues, As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. These men added nothing to my message. In essence, Paul's saying, I'm not as worried about what men think as I am what God thinks. And we're going to come back to that thought in a moment. Verse 7, on the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. God had ordained it. God had said to Paul, you go teach to the Gentiles. And He had said to Peter, just as legitimately, you go teach the Jews. But the goal was the same in God's eyes. The goal was for both of them, all of them, 
to come to a relationship with Jesus by simply placing their trust. Verse 8, For God who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. They seem to have the ability to resolve this conflict. And Peter, I'm sorry, Paul, by what he writes about here and by his actions, demonstrates to us that when we have experienced God's grace in our life, it should impact the way that we treat people. It should have an influence in how we treat other people. And I think as we go along in this chapter, Paul then models for us some truths about how we ought to relate to people based on the fact that we have experienced God's grace in our lives. The first truth I see is this, that we will avoid working to please other people. We will avoid working to please other people. Paul says this very specifically back in chapter 1, verse 10. He says it this way, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says it is not about trying to please men. It's about trying to please God. And in this encounter with these leaders, by what Paul says and does, he makes it really clear that what is most important to him is not what these guys think about him. What's most important to him is that he makes sure that he pleases God by doing what is right. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute, Jeff. That kind of sounds like Paul's trying to earn God's approval. And I'd say no. Because you have to understand how God's principles of law and order work. I cannot earn my salvation. I cannot earn God's grace. I can't do enough to earn it. My salvation, God's grace, is a free gift to me. And as a result of receiving that gift, I should grow in my desire to allow God to lead my life. And I should grow in a desire to please God more than I desire to please other people. Let me try to explain it this way. Do you remember last week I told you towards the end a story that I made up about adopting a troubled child into our family? Remember I said, if this were to happen, suppose there was a child who was tremendously troubled and for whatever reason, his parents passed away. And so my family said to this child, we are inviting you to be part of our family. And remember I said probably early on there would be some conflict as he had to learn to live within the guidelines of our family. And as he was invited into that loving environment, hopefully eventually we would be able to convince him to live within the guidelines of our family. And I ask you, when would he become part of the family? When he learned to obey all the family rules? Or the day that we invited him to come into our family and he accepted our invitation? And the answer is, it would be the day that we invited him into the family. Not once he got to the point where he obeyed all the rules. And the same thing is kind of true. You know, when we think about inviting that child into our family... I would hope that even though he didn't have to earn his way into the family, that as time went along and he experienced a loving environment and he realized how deeply we loved him, that he would desire to please us. That our love for him would motivate his desire to say, you know what, I want to do what's right because I want to please them. 
And while in my relationship with God, I don't have to earn that relationship, I get it by simply placing my trust in Him. God's desire is that as we recognize His love for us, our desire to please Him would grow. Would grow to the point that we would value pleasing Him over pleasing other people. I think Paul points to Peter as an example of this principle in in verse 11. But first let me say this. You know, when I am more concerned about pleasing God than pleasing people, it really sets me free. Because you know what? Trying to please people all the time can be frustrating. Think about it. People change their minds all the time. And one group wants me to act this way and the next group wants me to act this way. It isn't possible to please everybody. God, on the other hand, is consistent. He never changes. And He is always looking out for my best interest. So when I get to the point that I admit that I am more concerned about pleasing God than I am pleasing people, it's liberating. It sets me free. Now again, verse 11, uh, Paul kind of gives us an illustration there. He talks about Peter some more. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Pretty straightforward there. I mean, I, I can just see that conversation. Because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So here's what was happening. Peter came to the city and he would hang out with the Gentiles all the time. He'd eat with them. But as soon as some Jewish leaders showed up, that changed everything. And suddenly Peter's like, oh, I can't hang out with the Gentiles anymore. I'll just hang out with the Jews. And Paul, pretty point blank, says, you're being a hypocrite. That's wrong. You're worried more about pleasing men than you are about doing what is right. And to treat these Gentile believers like they are something less is wrong. Peter, Paul tells him. And his point is, Peter, you need to be more worried about pleasing God than you are about pleasing people. You know what? Peter should have already known that. He had an encounter with Jesus one day that should he should have learned that lesson. Back in, it's recorded in John 21. And the history of the event is that uh, this is, began really in the courtyard the night that Jesus was arrested. And Peter had said to Jesus on that night, you know what, I, I will always follow me. You know, Jesus, you can count on me. I mean, I would never deny you. I will always stand with you. You can count on me. And then just hours later, after Jesus had been arrested, Peter was in the courtyard warming himself over a fire. And three times, he denies he's even a Christ follower. And in that moment, he's overcome with the guilt of his actions and Jesus is later crucified and then he resurrects and go forward just a few weeks in history and now Peter and some of his buddies have been out fishing all night and they haven't caught anything. They hear this voice from up on the shore who says, why don't you try throwing your nets on the other side of the boat? And they think to themselves, we've tried that. But they did and they caught this massive amount of fish and suddenly Peter realizes that's Jesus. So they must have been close enough to shore because the Bible says that Peter got out of the boat and he ran to the shore. And when he got there, Jesus had a fire going and he was cooking some fish, some breakfast for Peter. And they have this conversation where three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? 
And a lot of times we get sort of captivated in that story because the, the Greek there talks about different words for love and different levels of love. And what was Jesus trying to do with Peter there? But you know, every time after that, Jesus says to Peter, if you love me, feed my lambs. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my people. You know what I think Jesus was communicating to Peter? Peter, if you love me, you will care about what I care about. And I'll know that you really love me when you start caring about the same thing that I care about. And what I care about is making sure that my followers are fed and taken care of. So, later in life, Peter should have realized that what was important in life was making sure that he worked to please God. That his first concern was, what does God think? And not, what do the people around me think? Now, maybe you ask, well, how do we do that? How do I know what matters to God? How do I know what He would think is most important? Let me ask you, how many of you, uh, anybody still have dial-up internet? It's okay, I'm not trying to embarrass you, just I'm curious. Anybody, uh, that's fine, good, Okay. The rest of you probably are on broadband, you know, like DSL or cable or something, right? A lot of us. I remember when I first got dial-up Internet. And it was back in the days where, you know, you bought a plan that included so many minutes, usually, like with AOL or somebody. And so, you know, most of the time, what we do with the Internet then, we'd come home from work, we'd dial up, we'd go and check our email and download it. We might surf the web a little bit, but we were always cautious because we didn't want to use up those minutes and get charged extra. But now what happens in the day of day and age of broadband for a lot of us? When, we're, when our computer's on, we're connected, aren't we? we? We stay connected, a lot of us, all the time. We never get off the Internet. We are always connected. Some of us try to treat God like He's dial-up. And we're limited in our minutes. And we might connect here on Sunday mornings or maybe some other infrequent times during the week, but most of the time we just kind of do our life like we're not connected. And God's desire is that we would treat Him like we're on broadband. And we would stay connected all the time. And you know, when I get to the point in my life where I am staying connected to God all the time, I will grow in my heart to understand through His Spirit what He thinks is best and what would please Him. And I will be more concerned about doing what God thinks is best than I am about what people think. Well, here's the second truth that I think Paul points out in this passage in verse 14. He says this, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the Gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, here's the truth, I think. Paul's saying don't compromise the truth. Now, why do I say that? Look at verse 14, the very beginning. Paul says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the Gospel. That's the issue. Paul is concerned about the truth of the Gospel. You see, the fact that my obedience to God's law does not earn my way into heaven does not make God's law any less valuable. The fact that I can have a relationship by simply placing my trust in Jesus doesn't mean that I should compromise the truth of this book or that the truth of this book becomes any less important in my life. But I think sometimes there has been this tendency that we think, well, 
Okay, I don't have to earn my way into heaven. I don't have to earn God's love. The law isn't what gets me into a relationship, so the law must not be all that important. God's Word, the truth of it, must not be that valuable. But that's not the case. Again, back to that story of adopting someone into my family. When we would adopt that child into the family, it, it wouldn't be their obedience to our set of laws that got them into the family. But once they were a part of our family and part of a, what I hope would be a loving environment, there would be some rules to follow. Not because we were trying to be difficult, but rules that would be there intended for their safety, intended for their protection, and intended for the overall health of our family. And while they wouldn't be expected to follow the rules to earn their way into the family, there would be an expectation that because they are a part of the family, they would desire to follow the rules. Rules that have been placed there for their protection. And while you and I do not earn our way into God's family, this book is filled with guidelines that are there for our protection, that allow God's family to operate safely and effectively. And it's God's plan that because I am a part of the family, I would value the truth of His Word and value applying those things to my life. They're not truths to be ignored, but truths to be followed for my own good because I am a part of His family. Verse 15 points out another truth. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, I don't think Paul is trying to be derogatory towards the Gentile people when he says that. I think that more is aimed at the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders. He's saying to them, because that's how they often felt about the Gentiles. They looked down on the Gentiles. They thought they were less spiritual. In fact, maybe sometimes they would have called them the Gentile sinners. And so I think Paul is being sarcastic towards the Jewish leaders that he's talking with. He says, kind of like, you know how we treat those Gentile sinners. He goes on to say, Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Here's a lesson. When it comes to our relationship with people, Paul says, avoid spiritual pride or avoid the comparison game. You see, sometimes we are tempted to judge our level of righteousness by comparing ourselves to other people. It's part of a performance mentality. Because we kind of look around and kind of scope it out and say, where am I in, you know, spiritually compared to everybody else? And as long as I'm ahead of some people, then we feel pretty good about where we are spiritually. And we have a tendency sometimes to look at the people who we think are not quite as spiritual or as righteous as us, and we have a sense of pride towards them. Let me illustrate it this way. I think sometimes we have this sort of imaginary chart that we have drawn in our minds, a, a sort of a degrees of spirituality, degrees of righteousness. And you know, maybe at the top of our chart we'd write people like uh, you know, Mother Teresa, you know, because we would think of her and all that she did and, you know, quite righteous. Or maybe at the top of our list would be somebody like Billy Graham. You know, he'd be right up there. And we look at them and think, you know, I know I'm not as uh, spiritual or as righteous or as holy, whatever term you want to use. I'm not as good as them. 
And then, then we'd have some people at the bottom of our list. And maybe we'd put somebody like, uh, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, who committed all those horrible crimes years ago, or some other mass murderer, and we'd, we'd have them at the very bottom of the chart. And somewhere we'd probably place ourselves, and, you know, maybe we wouldn't be quite at the middle, but just, just above the middle, and we'd write our name. And then we, there's that guy at work. You know, he's always cheating. He's always cheating. You know, and so we'd write his name right here, and I won't actually put a name because I'd pick one of your names, and then you'd think I was. And then, you know, there, but then there's this other person at work, and boy, they're always helping everybody around the office, and oh, well, I wish I was as good as them, and, you know, we'd write their name up here somewhere. They'd be just above us. And we have this whole chart where we picture where we are spiritually by comparing ourselves to what other people are doing. It's part of the performance mentality that says my spirituality is based on what I do. Paul says my spirituality isn't based on what I do. And when I draw up a chart like this, I get this sort of spiritual pride towards other people. Maybe it's something like this. Maybe you think, I set up and tear down. He only sets up. I'm much closer to God. And you might be. I don't know. Try doing both and see what happens. Um, (laughs) Or, I'm in a life group. They don't go to life group. I know I'm more spiritual. Or, I've been on a mission trip out of the country. They only went on a mission trip in America. I know I'm more righteous. Or, you know what, they, they've got an addiction. I don't think I'm addicted to anything. I'm closer to God. What is it for you? It is this attitude, though, that says, I am spiritually better than other people. And consciously or subconsciously, we begin to treat them differently because we have this spiritual pride. Paul says, you know what, it doesn't have anything to do your justification isn't by your obedience to the law. Your justification comes through Jesus. Now what does that word justification mean? Our standing before God has everything to do with being justified by faith. Well, let me try to illustrate it this way. There, there was a guy in Europe that owned a Rolls Royce. Very expensive car. Very nice car. And uh, he decided he was going to take an extended uh, vacation to America for several, many, many months. And so he decided he didn't want to be without his car all that time, so he packed it up and had it shipped to America. When he got here, he drove it around, but then he had some mechanical problems with it, and so he called Rolls-Royce and said, you know, here's the problem with my car, here's what it's been doing, and they said, no problem. We will put a mechanic on a plane with uh, his tools and parts. He'll be there within 48 hours. And he did. He showed up, worked on the guy's car right there in the resort parking lot, got it running again, and flew back to Europe. Time passed and this guy headed home and almost a year had gone by and he realized, I've never got a bill for that. So he wrote to Rolls Royce and said, yeah, you know, this happened with my car. This was what was wrong with it. It happened on this date and this place. You sent a mechanic over. I never got a bill. If you'd like to send me a bill, I want to pay you what I owe you. Rolls Royce wrote back and said to him, we have no record that any such thing has ever been wrong with one of our cars in the place or time that you mentioned. That's justification. Rolls-Royce acted just as if nothing had ever been wrong with their car. And when God looks at us 
who have committed our lives to Jesus and placed our trust in Him, He looks at us through the lens of Jesus and says of each of us, I see you just as if you had never sinned. Because through Jesus, our wrong has been erased. It has been cleansed. It has been forgiven and forgotten. And Paul says, we aren't justified by earning it. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And so the next time you are tempted to look at somebody with some spiritual pride and think you're just a bit better because you do more spiritual things, stop yourself. And remember that before God, we stand on even ground. And none of us is better than anyone else. Although if you'd like to try again, setting up and tearing up, just kidding. One more truth, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Here's the last truth that I see about our relationship with people. That is, we need to treat people with grace. You know, it's a core value around here. We believe in grace. We want to be a place filled with grace. And we want to be people who demonstrate grace to others. You know, it's funny to me how we could have such incredible grace extended to us by God. And we sometimes are so unwilling to extend grace to others. You would think that anyone who is a grace receiver would be a grace giver. But it's not always true, is it? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. This old self, this old way of life, this old way of thinking about people, it was crucified when I placed my trust in Jesus. And now Jesus lives in me. And you know what? Jesus is a grace giver. And if He really lives in me, shouldn't I also be a grace giver? I read this week that when you place a magnet on metal and you leave it there for an extended time, they, it's almost like they exchange characteristics. It's as if they almost become one in the same after a period of time. I think that's a pretty good picture of what God would desire for us in our relationship with Jesus, that we would walk so closely to Him that His characteristics would rub off on us and we would become so much like Him that we would regularly extend grace to other people. I think sometimes we have pictured God's grace like this. We have pictured ourselves as a pitcher and at some point God's grace was generously poured into our lives. But once it was poured into our lives, we had this idea that, you know what, I'm just going to hold on to this. I'm just going to carry it around with me and enjoy the forgiveness and God's grace and the hope that I have. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to hold on to this grace because it's such a cool gift that God has given me. You know what, I don't think that was God's intention. I think rather than viewing ourselves as a pitcher that holds on to God's grace, I think God intended that we would picture ourselves, I learned this week, this is called a colander. 
And I think that's how God desired that we would picture that His grace is poured into us and filters right through into the lives of other people. And I got caught up in telling you it was a colander and lost my train of thought. God intended that as His grace is poured into our lives, that it would flow, that we wouldn't just contain it, but that it would flow through us and into other people's lives. Paul said, don't set aside the grace of God, but let it flow through your life. Every day, everywhere you go, be a dispenser of God's grace to other people. Dan mentioned that we're going to have a Love Your Neighbor Day on May 17th. And the point of that day is simply for us to intentionally dispense God's grace to other people. And I want to encourage you on that day, in this particular case, I want you to think of your neighbor as somebody that literally lives in close proximity. Those houses that are right around you. And I want you to think creatively. What could I do just to say to them, I care about you, God cares about you, and I want to dispense God's grace to you. And it may be as simple as mowing their yard or washing their car or taking over a plate of cookies or inviting them to dinner or taking them out for lunch. But do something intentionally to one of your neighbors to say to them, God cares about you. And when you do that, you will be a dispenser of God's grace. And you know, for some of us, we've got a neighbor that lives close to us that aggravates us for some reason. And you know what? That's probably the person that you need to dispense grace to on that day. Not the neighbor that you just enjoy hanging out with. Although that would be okay too. But maybe it's that neighbor that really just frustrates you. They need a dose of God's grace from you. Do you remember the story of Peter? When he got up onto the shore that day, Jesus was cooking over a fire. And the Greek word that's used in the, in the New Testament to describe that fire describes it as a charcoal fire. That term, charcoal fire, that, that's used there, it is used only one other time in the New Testament. Do you know when it's used? It's used to describe the fire that Peter stood over in the courtyard to warm himself the night that he betrayed Jesus. And I don't know, I'm just speculating, but I have to think that night when he smelled that distinct smell of charcoal, burning, that his mind just for a moment flashed back to the courtyard. That he remembered just for a moment that night that he denied Jesus and did he just for a second remember what it felt like to feel that guilt. And then was he brought right back to reality as he experienced in that moment Jesus inviting him to breakfast. Jesus extending His love and saying to Peter, I want you to care about what I care about. Do you have a charcoal fire reminder in your life that every once in a while takes you back and just reminds you that at some point in your life you experienced God's grace for the first time? That reminds you that you needed His grace, that there was sin in your life and you needed it to be forgiven and forgotten, that you needed to be cleansed from it. You needed to be washed. You needed hope. I think we all need some charcoal fire reminders in our lives because I think it will affect the way we treat other people when we're reminded that we needed God's grace and still need God's grace in our lives. It will allow us to treat other people with grace. I think it will help us avoid having spiritual pride and looking down on other people that we don't think are as spiritual as we are. 
I think it can help us to value the truth of God's Word and its impact in our lives. And I think it can cause us to remember that I value what God thinks more than I value what other people think. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that in this moment right now, You would take all of us back to a moment. Back to the moment for some of us that we first experienced Your grace. Father, for some people in this room, You'd take them to this moment right now because today they need Your grace. And I pray, God, that You would remind us of the change that can come in our lives when we simply place our trust in You. And God, as we're reminded of that and as it changes us, would You cause it in our lives to impact the way that we treat other people? And God, would You help us to value them the way that You value them? And God, to treat them with grace. God, would You this week help us to be dispensers of Your grace to everyone that we come in contact with. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.